The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Very much as we start off our another study uh, this weekend. Thank you for your patience as well. We had two computers crash in our office this week. The projector died, so hallelujah, Jesus is still Lord. So it is what it is. Uh, we just kind of took it in stride, and for many of you, that's taking you back not only to your hymnal days, but the pre-hymnal days, which if you were alive in pre-hymnal days, you'd be pretty old. So uh, uh, we'll let that be what it is. Uh, but thank you to uh, to all the sound crew. You you don't often see these, but you see them, but Amy and and Andy, and Megan, and Cameron, and Gilbert, and all these people that do the behind-the-scenes stuff, thank you for allowing us to get by today with just these sheets as we do. Well, I invite your attention this morning to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, as we continue our study, uh, kind of heading by heading, we're almost hitting that mark as we do, uh, Mark chapter 8. And if you're joining us, we're in a now a year-and-a-half study, halfway through, praise the Lord, of getting to the end of Mark and thank you for your patience. But as I'll often remind you, church, we do this because this is how God's Word needs to be studied. Not pick a phrase here, pick a phrase there, but go verse by verse, just as you would like someone to represent your conversation well, not just to cherry-pick things you said, but to hear the whole context, so the Bible needs to be studied appropriately in its context this morning. I have no PowerPoint behind me. That doesn't bother me. It might bother you, uh, but uh, Tina's shaking her head, so I may repeat a couple lines here and there. I know a lot of you take notes, so if you don't get something, just find me afterwards. We'll do our best to get it down for you. Mark chapter 8, and the, the, the sermon title today is actually different than your bulletin, but what makes Jesus sigh? You know that thing. Well, before we get there, I, being a Lord of the Rings fan, I, I wish I had the picture up to show you this. Many of you know this story well. But the Lord of the Rings tells the story of a small, diverse group of people that go on a mission to destroy the dark, evil Lord named Sauron. You may remember the movies or the books. And it's a band of two men, a dwarf, an elf, four hobbits, and a wizard. It sounds like a Baptist church, pretty much is what it is. <laughs> Though they represent different races, different, different areas, they're united by this one thing. They want to get rid of the dark lord. But their unity is tested. In fact, in one scene in the book and the movie of The Lord of the Rings, uh, which didn't make it to the movie, I should say, an intense conflict breaks out. Harsh words fly. Arrows are drawn. Axes are raised. And, and, and bows are bent. And the mission is almost lost before it even gets started. But Peace is restored eventually, and one member of the party says, in essence, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but he says, the Dark Lord shows his greatest power when he can divide us of those who oppose him. Let me read that again. The Dark Lord shows his greatest power when he can divide those who oppose him. And this is exactly, if I can, applying this to our text this morning, what is trying to happen from the Pharisees to Jesus. The Pharisees are kind of that dark Lord in a sense, as it is in this example. And Jesus and his disciples are united. They're not getting everything. They don't understand everything, but they're headed the same direction. 
But coming down the pike, and you know this because you've heard the story, will be the temptation uh, of Judas to, to do the, the, the bidding of giving away Jesus, and he does. But it's a reminder to us as we enter another section of Mark that Satan is most effective if he can get us to waste our energy fighting each other instead of fighting him. Spiritual warfare is something that really exists. Satan wants to convince us that as a group together, we should be divided and go individual here, Lone Ranger Christian there. But the greatest stink at spiritual warfare is that we fear the devil way more than we fear the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. In spiritual warfare, we don't fight for victory, but from victory. That victory that was done 2,000 years ago when Jesus said, it is finished. And that is the message that unites our church, diverse as we are. Let's remind what Scripture says. Jesus, or, or Jesus told us, or Peter told us, that Satan is a roaring lion. He's lion. He's not a golden doodle. Do you have a golden doodle at home, anybody? They're pretty, they're wimpy. Oh, one person does. Hi, Lori. It's nice to see you too. Yes, as it is. But we need to take spiritual warfare quickly. 1 John 3, 8 reminds us that the reason the Son of God has appeared is to destroy the work of the devil. But the devil's work is to destroy the church. He wants to separate us. He wants to break us. He wants to mold us and bend us and make us do all sorts of things that would be against what the Scripture would have. But in the midst of his saving mission, Jesus often met this devil head on. And he confronted him head on. And as we're going to see again today, there's this constant conflict between darkness and light, light and darkness. And you remember when Jesus was baptized, he fought Satan, if you will, for 40 days and 40 nights. And the devil came back again and again and again and again with a full arsenal of everything he had to lure Jesus away from his path to the cross. But Satan would work through other people, today the Pharisees and even his disciples, to try and stop him at the cross. But at the cross, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent. Amen? And as he did, Satan's goal was to stop him before he got there. And friends, there are times when we will question the goodness of God or the love of God in times, as these disciples will see, when conflicts come and things get a little dicey because we will ask, Lord, where are you now? And that is one of Satan's cruelest lies that he has because he whispers in our ears, he says, does God really love you? I mean, if he loved you, why would you go through this? Why would you have to suffer this? Why would your church experience this? But why are we always frantically looking all over for any other title than the title we have? And that is we are children of God, not children of Satan as those without Christ are. But friends, we have the only one who can solve all conflict and has solved the greatest conflict in our souls. That is the salvation, the gospel itself. So the big idea today, if you're visiting with us, the big ideas are kind of our summary of the sermon. But the big idea today is you're going to really miss the spiritual warfare around you. If you love signs more than you love truth. Well, if God would just show up and give me a miracle, then I'd believe in him. If God would just pay that Lamborghini bill I took a loan out for, by golly, I would believe in him. That's not how our God works, is it? Our God reminds us that truth trumps signs. And prosperity and poverty are not signs of God's favor or disfavor, but God's promised mercy in the gospel is the anchor for our soul. If you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease, who comes against you in conflict, spiritual or otherwise. But if you displease God, it does not matter whom you please, because you're off the mark. 
So how we handle our faith matters. So friends, three things today that make Jesus sigh. Like a parent, like we've done this a lot in the last couple days. We love long weekends, but boy, when it's 99 degrees, there's only so much three-year-old bodies can take. And there's a lot of sighing of parents saying, go to your room, go and do these things. In a sense, that's where Jesus is today in this passage. Three things that make Jesus sigh. First off, when we seek him pridefully and seek to argue with him. When we treat him like a genie or a magician, verses 11 and 12, and when we reject the way of salvation, verse 13 of chapter 8. So, well, Darren, how's that relate to your open example? It relates this way. Mark 8, 11 says that they came to test him, the Pharisees did. And in testing him, they were going to bring everything they had against the Savior in the hopes that they would break the ranks and break up the party known as the gospel party that Jesus had. But friends, this passage is short, but it's intense, but I want you to know Jesus is in control. He wins the victory, but we need to be reminded that there are principles here for us, application, that the closer Jesus got to the cross, the stronger the warfare grew. The closer you live for Jesus, the more warfare you will see, spiritually speaking. Our battle, friends, is not against flesh and blood, Ephesians 6 reminds us, but it's against the powers and the principalities and things that we cannot see. And here Jesus is going to see some of that as he goes through and asks that question, what makes him sigh? If you're able, and if you're visiting, we, we usually do this in honor of God's word. If you're able to this morning, if you would join us in standing to read just four verses this morning, actually, Mark chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Mark chapter 8, 10 through 13. Be reading out of the ESV. I forgot to grab the page number for the Bible, but you're welcome to use the blue page, uh, blue Bible that has that page there as well. Well, uh, page eight four three. Thank you, Nelson, for doing that. That's why you're a good assistant pastor there. Keep keep the pastor in line. All right. Start in verse uh, verse ten here, and it says, and immediately he got into the boat. That's Jesus with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmathua, and the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking him. From him a sign from heaven to test him. And he, that being Jesus, sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This little passage, as often we've seen in Mark, is just a little snippet. But in these little snippet passages the last year and a half, we've seen great gospel truth. And I pray, guys, as we look at this, we don't just dismiss it as, uh, oh, Jesus just left him. We see this as a way that even as Christians, we can make Jesus sigh, in a sense, deeply within his soul. Will you pray with me as we go before our Lord? Fathers, we come before you. We know that uh, spiritual warfare is ever around us, not in some crazy spiritual mapping thing, Lord, or that we have to fight uh, you know, the devil as it is with a sword, as some movie would say. But, Father, simply as we seek to live the Christian life, the, the command set before us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Father, the spiritual warfare may just be as simple as walking across the street to greet a neighbor we haven't talked to in 20 years. But, Father, we know it's real. So, Father, as we seek to know you better, may these warnings from Scripture be very upfront for us. But, but Father, thank you for those of us who know Christ that there is grace, even if we stumble in these, that there is grace. But, Father, as we seek as a church to go forward with the gospel of Christ, may episodes like this not deter us, but may they strengthen us together as one body, one heart, one mind, one baptism, one faith, united in Christ, 
and all things that matter for your glory. Thank you for this time. Be with us as we study. We pray this in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Well, as you are finding your way there, I, I, I just want to remind you, too, as a little announcement, uh, some of you have asked me about these even today. We've uh, put these out in times before. I've kind of resurrected them, but we have these application grids. Uh, it's, it's different areas of life and church and public life that the, the passage we're preaching through applies to, at least as I study the Scripture. So these are outside afterwards if you want to get these. This is application. This is practical stuff that's not in the sermon most often that you can pick up and you read. It's good bedtime reading. It might put you to sleep, but it will put you to sleep in a good way. Uh, and I'll even say it that way, as God does. I want you to notice here in verse 10 what happens. It, first off, when, when Jesus sighs, he sighs because we seek pridefully after him and try to argue with him. Notice verse 10. You see that favorite phrase of Mark. And if you've been with us this whole time, you've heard this so many times. But, but, but chapter 8, verse 10 reminds us that he immediately went into the boat. What a reminder that when Jesus says, follow me, church, he does not tell us where he will lead us. He just says to follow. And this is Mark's favorite word. This word immediately is used 44 times in the New Testament, and Mark uses 40 of those 44 times. He is the quick pace thing going through these. Last week, we looked at the feeding of the 4,000, and there's no grass growing under Jesus' feet. You know, we have to mow our lawn about once a week this time of year. Jesus just doesn't leave grass. He goes and goes and goes. And this is what he does. He's not just a man of words. He's a man of deeds. And as he goes, he shows not only the speed and quickness of his ministry, but he shows his resolve to go. That so often we get stuck up on things. Well, God, if you would just give me this, or God, if you would just put this situation this way, I would go. We have the Jonah response. God, I can't like those people because they're different from me. Therefore, I'm going to go this way. And, and Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus is always going. He's always serving. He's always doing something, even in his rest times. And so you see there in verse 10 that they entered into the boat. Literally, they entered into the boat. Literally, Jesus in the Greek, he's pulling them forward. He's pulling them forward. And isn't that often how Jesus has to do with us? As, as he's going, we are often the, the, the hesitant ones saying, God, I'm not sure I want to go with you here. But that's what he's doing. He's telling them there's no time to lag behind. If you recall last week, we were in Gentile territory. Now we're headed across the lake over to Jewish territory. Now think about that for a second. Jesus, you're God. You know all things. You're omniscient. But why in the world do you want to go back where the pot is being stirred? I mean, come on, Jesus. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And you got out of the kitchen even though you can stand the heat. But why do you want to go back in the heat, Jesus? Get in the AC. I mean, come on. Why is he doing this? Because he knows that there is these guys, the Pharisees, waiting for him. Friend, he was fulfilling Jesus was his obedience to his father. Jesus being fully man but fully God, as a man, he's fulfilling the will that God had for him. And what a great challenge to us that we need to do just as Jesus did. That when God says go, we go. We need to go because partial obedience is no obedience. Hey, son, take out the trash. And they cut the bag in half and take out half the trash. How would you feel about that? That's partial obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. This is why James 4 tells us to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it is 
sin. Sins of omission and commission. But delayed obedience is no obedience. Once God makes a path known for you, then you are to pursue it. You can apply that in so many ways. For some of you in this room, it is forgiving that person in this church, in your family, at your work, that in Jesus' name you know a long time ago you need to extend forgiveness to, but you hard-heartedly are holding it in. For some of you, your delayed or disobedient partial obedience may just simply be going and sharing the gospel. God's been beating you, talking to you, not audibly, but in the word as he leads by the Spirit to go and share the gospel, and you have just said, when I'm ready, Lord, I will go. For some of you, that may be giving financially, maybe giving you resources, your time, fill in the blank. But what Jesus reminds us here is, is that tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's day. Isn't it interesting that Jesus told them that tomorrow has enough worry about itself, but today has enough trouble of its own? What is it that God has called you to do as you seek after him that you have not yet fulfilled? And like the disciples, do we simply obey what is asked of us by our authorities? I mean, you think about this. The Pharisees have been told time and time again, Jesus has told them, I am the way, I am the truth, but they don't obey him. Friend, do you have simple obedience in your work life? I mean, if your boss asks you to do something, do you just step back and go, <laughs> like, uh, I'm going to, you know, like, the, we all joke about this, like the 10 men that, like, stand around the one guy digging the hole, you know? Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I'm working, I'm supervising. Oh, well, you're doing something. I don't think you're supervising. You're chatting it away. But do we follow as a witness what doesn't go against the Bible that others ask us to do? Simply, Jesus said immediately, and they went And that is what we need to see. But notice the intentional route here in verse 10. They're going very specifically to a very specific place. They're going to a place that is is back to Jewish territory. They are going from the eastern shore. Now they're going back over to the western shore. And he's not only here for a short time, he's he's going on a journey of judgment. Jesus is going to sail in and sail right back out. He's going to go and leave. And he goes to a place, and you say this fast. I practiced at home, and I blew this out of the water. Dalmanathua. I still can't get that right. Yeah, say that ten times fast over lunch and see how you do. But he goes back over there, and, and these people, are, 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 they're ready for him. Notice, we don't really know where this is. It's somewhere on the western shore, but he's going back in the teeth of the tigers. And now you see in verse 11 the conflict. Who's waiting there? The same ones who are going to argue with him and chase after him. These Pharisees came and began, it says in verse 11, to argue with him. Why? Because they are probably keeping their eyes out. Like a good century, S-E-N-T-R-Y, posted, waiting for the enemy to come, these Pharisees were waiting for Jesus to step back on their shore. And when that boat pulled up, they were ready to jump on him. Christian, this is a reminder to you. That something that makes Jesus sigh deep within his soul are when people are ready to go toe-to-toe with him. You ever known someone, if you share the gospel with them before, they say, oh, hogwash, I'll talk to Jesus on that day, I'll set him straight, we'll have a one-to-one. Oh yeah, good luck with that. Revelation 20 says that all heaven and earth fled away from him whose, whose presence was there, that they ran away from him. But Christian, if there are people in your life who want to argue with you and chase after you just to be that person, then get to this truth in your head that spiritual warfare can easily escalate. There's nothing worse 
than forgetting that your battle is not against flesh and blood. Your battle is not to win an argument to show how smart you are. Your battle is not to win and twist someone's arm so they would come to know Jesus. Your trust is to trust Jesus and know that his word cannot be argued with. And no matter what arguments they throw your way, as tough as they may be, they will never satisfy, even with the best answer, the seeking soul that asks them. This is why seeker sensitive churches are often a, just a big goal as a, as a Christian. Because there's none who seek after God, no, not one. We are all outside of Jesus, enemies of God, and without that, we have no hope of knowing who Jesus is because we must see that we are unsaved. And notice what they did. They didn't say, Jesus, oh, it's so good to see you. Here's a sign that says, welcome back. You know, here's a hug, and the news cameras show up. As soon as he's still in the boat, imaginably, it says they began to argue with him. They locked horns with him. They got in an arm wrestling match, not literally, but they would not submit to Christ, and neither would they humble themselves and, and, the, and the authority of God's Word. They wanted nothing to do with Jesus to the point they were willing to argue with Him. Friends, non-Christian friend, if you're not a Christian here today, thank you so much for joining us. I just want to say a word to you that you don't need to argue your righteousness before God. The cross of Jesus is the only argument you will ever need. If you are not a Christian here today, it's unnerving to realize that the God we argue with and against created our brains and is never caught off guard by your brilliant objections. You bring your, your best question to God, and I guarantee you it'll mean nothing. And if you're a Christian here today, can I remind you, if people ridicule you for Christ's sake, it's not about you. It's because your obedience shames their hypocrisy. Your obedience shames their hypocrisy. I wish I had a picture of him I, I could show you, but I'm going to take you back to one of those old dead guys because you need to know your church history. But in 1555, I think, uh, I think uh, I'm trying to pick on someone who won't get mad at me afterwards. Someone in our congregation was alive then, but I won't say who it was. But in 1555, and many of you know this history, but as a part of a campaign to reestablish the Catholic Church in England, Bloody Mary, Queen Mary, uh, arranged for John Philpot, who was a pastor of the time, uh, to be burned at the stake. And when his death sentence was pronounced, Philpot said, I'm ready. God grant me the strength and a joyful resurrection. And Philpot walked into the place of execution. He, he, he wasn't dragged. He walked in himself. That's an odd thing, even in that day. And he knelt down and kissed the stake on which he was about to be burned. Why? Because it's so easy for someone whose eyes are worried about the argumentation down here to forget for the people they're arguing against, they serve a God that can never be argued against. Friends, Philpot saw God high and lifted up as Isaiah did, and because of that, when spiritual conflict came, when people chased after Jesus, when they argued with Jesus, it didn't matter. He cared for the souls, to be sure. He was, a, he was a Christian. He cared for their souls as a sheep without a shepherd, as Jesus did himself. But at the same time, Philpot and all of us know that no matter what arguments people bring against us, friends, we have a Savior, and he lives today. No matter what the world says, that, that Christianity is just dumb, and science this and science that. Look, the Bible is not a scientific document, but it does talk about science. The Bible speaks to life. It is sufficient, it is authoritative. And church, may I say a word to us? We fought for this Bible 40 years ago in the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention. Old history, we fought for this Bible. 
We fought for it to be God's word. It always has been, but we had to fight against a crowd that didn't believe that. But one thing we lack today is we don't believe this is enough. Dr. Phil, social media, even Oprah, sometimes trumps what the word of God says in our own lives. Friends, let the Bible be sufficient for you. Look, the Bible says it, we believe it, not just because it says it, but because we know it true to be in our own lives. And no matter what argumentation comes against, friend, provide an answer. Try the best. Give an answer to all those who ask you, but do so with, with humbleness and gentleness. Always be ready, First Peter 3.15 says. But remember, no matter what argumentation they bring, it doesn't change a heart even if you give the best answer. Jesus walked among the people and gave heavenly wisdom, and they still said, want nothing to do with you. So the first thing that makes Jesus sigh is that when people argue with him and run after him who have no desire to know him. I want you to notice the second thing that makes Jesus sigh in, here in verses 11 and 12, the second half of verse 11, is that when we treat him like a genie or a magician, when we treat him like a genie or a magician, look back at verse 11. So they came to him and, and they argue with him, but then they sought from him a sign from heaven to test him. And Jesus sighed, verse 12, deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given except the sign given to this generation. Just right out of the gate, let me remind you about this, Christian. And this was going to be up on the screen, but we don't test God, God tests us. We don't test God, God tests us. It's all about trying to keep the crowd on their side. They're seeking a sign from heaven. This is the same word that was used in Mark 1.13 when Jesus was tempted. But Jesus reminds this crowd, as he often did, especially in John 8.48, that you are of your father the devil, speaking to the Jewish crowd. I'm sure that won him like the best giving week overall as it was. But this is a repeat of Mark 4. If you are the son of God, they said, show us a sign. Prove yourself. Put your money where your mouth is, Jesus. Come on. Come on and do it. Mark 4, 6, if you are the Son of God, Satan said, throw yourself down. Do you remember that? Here it is. Friend, how carefully we need to be around those around us. If we come to Jesus only to get what the world wants, then Jesus is nothing more than a bellhop like it being at the Embassy Suites downtown. If you come to Jesus to get Jesus, he is honored. Look, friends, Jesus didn't have to do any signs. This is why Hebrews 1 reminds us that long ago, at many times, in many places, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son. This is why the Bible needs no further revelation. We stop at Revelation 22 for a reason, because all the apostles have died. That's why the book of Thomas, the book of Mormon, uh, the, the kingdom hall junk that comes out of Jehovah's Witnesses, with respect to them to believe what they believe, Jesus said in John 20, 29, Have you believed, speaking of Thomas, because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Scripture reminds us that we do not treat him like a genie or a magician. It would be so cool as a pastor to say, Woo, Jesus, we need some people saved in this neighborhood. Can you do it? Woo, that's one of your wishes, Darren. You have two more. And... That's just incredibly silly. He's not a genie in a bottle. But we often treat him like that, and you see what Jesus did. Do you notice what Jesus did here? He, he sighed. This wasn't like, oh, man, the, way, 
the line at Chick-fil-A, or Chick-fil-A is closed today. I guess I got to go to McDonald's, you know. It's not one of those type of things. Look back to Mark chapter 7. Just go back to the end of Mark chapter 7. We've seen him do this in the last couple weeks, Jesus. Mark 7, verse 34, it says, And looking to heaven, Jesus speaking, he what? He sighed. So there's two sighs going on here. There's one sigh where Jesus is curing the deaf and mute man where he is almost praising God's sigh. And then there's this sigh back in Mark chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus at this time is just, he's mad. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word. He's upset. He's grieving. Grief over the sins of others is leading evidence of true grace. That's what we know. The person who's really saved, the, the, the one who really knows Jesus Christ, will always regard the unconverted with pity and concern. And the same feeling Jesus has, this grief, this, 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 this utter torn-upness that's going on inside of him is the same torn-upness that should go inside of every Christian everywhere. The Bible is very clear. There is one way to heaven. The Bible says that there is judgment, that it's destined for a person to die once, Hebrews 9, 27, and then afterwards face the judgment. But oftentimes, and I'm speaking of myself, I'm more upset that I didn't get to run or get to get this food or get this, that, than more concerned about people who are headed to a real, conscious, eternal hell apart from the grace of Jesus Christ. Christians, how easily we get off this path. What Jesus reminds us of is that he is upset about anything that is anti-him. In this case, they want him to do something that he is not going to do. They gave, he gave signs all over the place, guys. It wasn't a matter that he gave signs. It's a matter they refuse to believe. And friend, let us never forget that unbelief and sin are just as great a cause of our Lord's grief then as they are to us now. If we have not recently wept over, whether physically or inside ourselves, people who don't know Jesus, then, friends, we need to have the, 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 the I don't know, the paddles brought on us spiritually to wake us up. Spurgeon said, if you have no desire for others to be saved, sir, I tell you, you may not be saved yourself. Can we doubt that when we seize persisting unbelief, he is grieved? Look, I would rather that we be more upset that people are headed to hell, church, than we are that our legislation as conservatives, as most of us are in this room, doesn't get passed in legislation. Do you understand that? And legislation is important. We need to have a place in politics and all those things. But we as Christians, the greatest grief is not that our favorite candidate did not get voted in. The greatest grief we have is that we have lost friends and family who are headed the opposite way of heaven, and we have a chance to share the gospel. And often, speaking of myself and with you, we do not share that as we do. We can win every election. We can win everything. But if, if our greatest heartbeat is, is that we don't see people as Jesus sees them in this passage, then we have missed the boat, the forest, or the trees. As we see a world of sin and unbelief around us, there should be a deep sigh in our souls. I hope that makes sense. And notice what he says here. He says to them, why do you seek a sign? Why do you seek a sign? Why do you want the show and not the truth? Why do you want all the fireworks but not everything else? Friends, he tells them to stop living for the now and start living for eternity. He tells them to stop living for a sign and live for the truth. 
Christian, you can do this as well. I can do this as well. We can be so enamored about the latest, greatest worship music that we are not okay with just simply singing an old hymn that's been around for 500 years that has more truth than that worship song probably had anyway. We can do this in so many ways. God, if you would just do this, I will follow you. God, if you would just do this, then I will follow you. That is not faith, friends. That is putting God, rubbing a genie, making him a magician. And Jesus told him in Matthew 6, 4, you will have no sign except the sign of Jonah. The only sign that they would have is that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. They didn't need any more info. They had a heart problem. You know, it reminds me of that great con artist. Some of you, I, I was interested in this history, but George C. Parker, does that name ring a bell for anybody? Wow, good, because anyway, just follow the story, follow the connection. But he's remembered as the most successful and daring swindler in American history. He set up an office in the 20s in New York City, and he sold the city's most famous landmarks, as it was. His favorite was the Brooklyn Bridge, but he also sold the Statue of Liberty, Madison Square Garden, and Grant's tomb. He forged the documents, collected the money, and tried to run away before he got caught. I think his name is called Bernie Madoff from a couple years ago. Some of you all know him. But he was so persuasive that on more than one occasion, police had to come and explain to the new owners that they really aren't owners of anything except a forged piece of paper. And after his third conviction for fraud, Parker was sentenced to Sing Sing Prison, where I know that from Law and Order. I didn't know this history. But he spent the last eight years of his life. He was not only an expert salesman, but he realized that many people were gullible, and he could use that to his advantage. Friends, the truth of the matter is, is that this man knew too much to how to swindle people. And Christian, if you are careful in your heart of hearts, you can be swindled by a smooth-talking preacher just like myself. And I say that smooth-talking meaning someone in a pulpit somewhere that sounds good and sounds great. You know, I don't, take, I don't do this lightly, but several years ago there was a gentleman by the name of Rob Bell, R-O-B-B-E-L-L. Some of you may know that name. He put out several videos called the NUMA videos, N-O-O-M-A. Rob Bell was on the cutting edge of ministry uh, when I was in seminary with uh, Chris and, 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 and John and some others in this room, and he was really popular. Rob Bell is now out of ministry and doesn't even believe there's a God anymore, but he serves as a religious consultant to all the major news outlets as the Christian expert on all things. Rob Bell said that, that, that hell must not be real because God must not be loving, and I, I will admit, even as a human, we struggle with that concept sometimes. But Rob Bell basically questioned everything to the point where he questioned everything out of himself of believing that there was anything true in this world. Charles Templeton, many of you know that name. Billy Graham's close associate for many years growing up came out to be an atheist in 1948. He said, I was just, glad, just doing this all the time, and Billy kicked him out because he believed certain things about God that were not biblical. He saw God one way when God was this way. If there's anything this passage teaches us, we should be... Soul, we should be sorrowful over lost souls, but pray for those in our churches to be grounded, anchored, and solidified in the Word of God for God's glory. Isn't that what Ephesians 4 tells us, church? That we are not to be blown away by every wind of doctrine, but to be satisfied, solidified in the Word of God, so that when guys like Parker, spiritually speaking, come along and throw you a bag of goods, you don't buy into it. Because God's Word cannot be swindled.
Finally, let's go to the last point here. So what makes Jesus sigh? Well, what makes him sigh is when we pridefully seek after to argue with him, when we treat him like a genie or magician. And finally, and this is the most obvious one of the text perhaps, but verse 13, when we reject the way of salvation. Notice verse 13. It says, and, and, and he left them. He, Jesus says this, and he left them. He got into the boat again and went to the other side. Wait, Jesus just showed up. I mean, if you're a disciple, be honest with me. I, I thought about this at least. If you're a disciple and you're rowing, rowing's hard work. Jesus, we just rowed like four miles over here, and we're here for like one sentence, and we're back in the boat going again. I'd be like, Jesus, you've got to give me a breather, man. Slow down a little bit. But you see what's happening here. They rejected the way of salvation. They rejected the very truth that God had given. And as soon as he had said this, he leaves them. And in leaving them, he's forsaking them. He's throwing his hands up. He's using the biblical language to dust his feet, dust the, uh, swipe the dust off their feet. Friends, there are those who will sit in churches for years that God has left in the same predicament. Romans 1 tells us that there are those that have sinned so much that God says, look, you want your sin, then you can have your sin. I want nothing. You got it. Pharaoh would be an example of that. There are those whose spouses here today are brought under the preaching of God's Word. Maybe some of you in this room have sat here, preacher after preacher, time after time. You've listened to CDs. You've gone to conferences. You've, you've heard Christian radio. But I want to give a deep sigh warning to you that just going to those things is no more making you a Christian than, than, than a car sitting in a garage makes that car a garage, or whatever the announcement is. We should not be easily fooled, but we should investigate all things. Look, there comes a time, if you are not a Christian, when Jesus simply sails away. Well, Darren, what about the thief on the cross? Absolutely. But there comes a time when Jesus says, look, you want it, you got it, you get your reward in full. And that reward is not a positive thing. There comes a time when Jesus turns away and sails away, never to bring your heart again, no more understanding of the gospel itself. And that's a hard truth. You may be like this group where you just want a sign to do this. God, do this. But friend, you are lost and need a Savior. He's given you the greatest sign. In the parable about Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, uh, God basically told the, the man, if they won't believe the law and the prophets... They won't believe that even a dead man goes by them, speaking of the Pharisees and everyone else. But if you're here today, there is a time where Jesus just goes and sails off. Well, when is that? I don't know. But if you're here today and you're hearing this warning and you're hearing what is being said to you and you're not a Christian, then you need to repent and believe the gospel. You need to believe that you are a sinner, you, are, you, you have so offended God that he himself had to come down in Jesus, live the life you couldn't live, die the life you couldn't die, and absorb on that cross the wrath of God to satisfy the judgment of God upon your soul. That is the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, will have eternal and everlasting life. That's what we know. I had a friend recently, uh, doesn't go to this church, her name's Katie, but Katie was is a godly woman who had a non-Christian friend, I'll just call him Charlie, but uh, on several occasions, she had the opportunity to share the gospel with Charlie, and all he did was respond with a simple thank you before rejecting the call, the faith, and repentance. And after this happened several times, my friend Katie said, Charlie, well, what would it take for you to believe in Jesus 
Christ. And Charlie simply said, I would have to see Jesus do a miracle with my own eyes if I were to believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And friends, Charlie's sentiment is not uncommon. More than one person has held that he would believe Jesus if he could see with his own eyes. But today's passage reminds us of this, church, is that that is wishful thinking. If one's heart is fully hardened against God, he himself could do a miracle, but that would never be enough. It would never be enough. God will not do tricks for those who will believe, let alone those who've hardened their hearts. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, look, I'm done with you. You're done eternally. You're done physically. And he literally just does the talk to the hand because the face ain't listening sort of thing, and he sails off the other way. And if you're not a Christian, that is the, the, the scariest thing that could ever happen to you. Well, what about the thief on the cross? What about him? He was saved, but there was also a thief on that cross who was not saved. Friends, what does this mean for us as a church? It means we need to be about the gospel business. You know this. I know this. How do we know those who will reject and those who we don't? We frankly we don't. We don't know who those people are. But we do know that what God has told us to do, don't we? To go ye therefore in all the nation and share the gospel, to, to disciple, to do all those things. I think it's just ironic in God's timing that, and I, I promise you, I'm a type A. I love planning things. I love doing those things. You know, Judy and I get kicks in the office like, let's plan this and this and this detail. And we have this little laugh. It's like, ooh, yeah, we plan that. You know, and do that sort of thing. And that's what we get our laughs up in the office. But I can tell you, as we've been preaching through Mark, it is amazing to me. We plan these things almost a year in advance with minor modification, how God continually brings what we are preaching through on the pulpit, studying in Bible study to what we are experiencing as a church and needs and in areas where we are at. Guys, that's a blessing of God's hand. I hope you see that. So many of you have come in the last several weeks and said, you know, I knew I needed to share the gospel, but it's encouraging to know there's several other people that have shared 60, 70 times in the last three or four weeks. Praise God for that. Thank God that He speaks to us when we need it the most. As we close, I just want to give three things to just very quickly to ask, are you growing in these areas? And Tina, I thought of you for these because I don't have these on the screen, so I'm going to say them twice for sake of writing things down. Are you growing in grace in these areas of your life? Friends, you've got some really good friends who will really disagree with you about the Bible and Jesus if you are following how Jesus led through this example. You have some really good friends who really disagree with you about Jesus and the Bible if you are being faithful to follow what God has called you to be faithful in here. Secondly, no matter what anyone says about you, you, if you are growing in this area of your life, will see that the cross is the greatest critic and the greatest cure of your life. People say some nasty things sometimes. We all have said nasty things sometimes. There was a pastor this week who a name and place and situation doesn't matter, whose social media he posted in a private group, and that was blasted out as a pastor. He had to resign his... Anyway, it's just terrible stuff. He, he said something in sarcasm, thought it was safe in a closed group. doesn't matter what you post online. It's going to be found out eventually, and rightfully so. He resigned his post. He repented. He's restored, but he had to resign his post because of things he said. He was angry at his critics. No matter what anyone says about you, if you're growing in the grace that we've seen through this passage, you'll realize that the cross is your greatest critic. No matter what someone says about you in relation to Jesus Christ, it's already been said about you and what God said about you outside of Jesus Christ. But praise God, he says that in him you are complete. In him you are forgiven no matter what mess up you may have. 
Friend, what joy that is. What freedom that is. You don't have to try to impress people anymore. Wow. You don't have to try and pad your resume anymore because Jesus has called you who you are. It doesn't mean you settle, but it means you accept the fact that no matter what the world throws at you, you are free in Jesus to take all the criticism because Jesus took it all for you on that cross. That's what we have. And finally, if you're growing in this area that we've seen today, you are not surprised at all when Jesus reveals just how self-centered you still are. And I had to write that down because that's so true of myself, that you are not surprised that when Jesus calls your bluff, he means it, and you look at that and say, ooh, if I could just, ooh. But Jesus is right because he's God. And when Jesus called their bluff, that saying that you want to see a sign, you don't want to see a sign. You want to see, you want a, a certain Savior, a certain way, Pharisees, he called their bluff, and they didn't like it. Friend, I pray that when God calls your bluff spiritually, that you will go and do likewise, that you will repent and believe the gospel all the more. Church, I'm excited about our future here. I hope you are too. I am super excited what God is doing in lives here. But as we do, remember, when the spiritual warfare comes, don't fight each other. Fight what Satan is doing in prayer and petition and loving and sharing where God has us wherever he has us. Let's pray as we close out today. Father God, as we come before you, we thank you so much that Despite projectors being broken and, and Windows updates going awry on some very important documents this week, that you are still God, and that's petty stuff. But, Father, we thank you that even when the world assails against us, even when they seek to argue and, and seek after you, when they seek to treat you as a genie or a magician, Lord, or when they just reject the way of salvation, you are still good. Father, that, that, that when you, so to speak, sigh deeply, Father, that, that you still have given us opportunity to share to love, to serve, to do all the things you've commanded us to do. Father, as we look at this passage, may we not be those who seek after signs to our detriment, but may we seek to be those who seek after truth to our betterment, both spiritually and physically, by your grace. He who has the Son has life, Father, you said, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. Father, thank you that life is found in Jesus alone. Father, as we worship and sing our last two songs, may you be praised. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you join us?